Hey, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 2. Thank you, guys. We are, as a church, going through the Gospel of John together. We're going to be taking a good long time to do so. And uh, we find ourselves in John 2, beginning in verse 13 today. And before I dive in and teach, I'm going to invite Ashley to come. She's going to do our scripture reading for today. I invite you just to open your hearts to the Word of God now, and then I'll pray and we'll get to work here in just a minute. This is God's Word from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Amen. Thank you, Ashley. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church family. God, we thank you that we can gather together each week Whatever's going on in our lives, whatever things are vying for our attention and, and distracting to us, but God, we can come, we can open the scriptures, and we can be invited in. We can get swept up in the story of your redeeming work in human history. God, I ask and I pray for each one of us today as we look at a, a challenging passage, if we look at a confrontational word from Jesus, I pray that you'd help our defenses to go down. God, that we as sinful people, we as flawed human beings. God, we're so prone to, like Adam and Eve, sewing fig leaves together to try to cover our shame and our nakedness. And God, I ask and I pray that we would not do that today, that we would allow the, uh, the intensity of Christ's love for us to do its work in our hearts and that we would run to Christ and Christ alone for our covering. For myself, God, I pray you'd guard my lips, help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word, and for all of us, may our focus and our attention be on Jesus above anyone or anything else. We pray this all in his good name. Amen. All right, I know you probably just had your eyes closed for praying, but if you want to, I'm going to invite you to, you can close your eyes, you can keep them open if you want, but I want you to envision yourself in like a crowded place. I want you to picture yourself a public place, a crowded place, maybe a restaurant, Maybe a, a, an arena for a sporting event. For me, I've been traveling lately. As I say this, I think of myself in the airport. I'm in security. TSA is lurking nearby. Uh, wherever you go, maybe you do the grocery shopping for your family and you think of yourself in Costco. Think of yourself in a public place. Out of the corner of your ear, you hear yelling and commotion. And as we're all prone to do, you start kind of looking and you start 
leaning in and maybe you rubberneck just a little bit. And what's the fighting going on? What's, what's happening? What's this confrontation? And you see maybe a, just a regular person there and they're arguing with somebody who's an employee or an official uh, person there at the location where you're at. You start having to kind of go through your, your deductive powers. You start to look and you think, okay, what's going on here? Is, is this person uh, mad at a staff member because the staff member did something wrong? Is this person mad at a staff member because they're just being unreasonable? You start listening for clues. And you start trying to piece it together. What is this fight that's going on? Is this just a scene? Is somebody just trying to cause a scene or do they have a a larger purpose? Okay, you can open your eyes if you had to close them. How many of you know that there's a difference between making a scene and making a statement? A toddler can make a scene in Costco. Yeah, preach. Thank you. I think your wife was saying that you could make a scene. Sorry, Stan, I love you. Um, There's a difference between making a scene, just just being loud, obnoxious for the sake of getting attention, and making a statement, doing something to draw the attention to yourself so that you can get a point across. This story of Jesus clearing the temple is an important story. It's so important, it actually shows up in all four of the Gospels. We've talked about it before that, that John is really different than the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three share a lot of material. And John, he's kind of off in the corner with his own unique perspective. But even he remembers Jesus clearing the temple. So what is Jesus doing? Why is he doing this? Now, here's the problem. For some of you who've been in church for a long time, you've probably heard a teaching on Jesus clearing the temple. You've probably read this passage. You've arrived at your own conclusions. I found myself this week, the last few weeks, as I've been prepping for this sermon, struck anew with kind of a fresh look at this passage because of the way that John approaches it. So I'm going to do something different than I usually do. Rather than setting up the big idea up front... And then working it out from there, what I want to do is I want to, like someone at the grocery store or at the airport, trying to figure out what this scene is, I want us to employ our deductive powers of reason. I want us to dig into these passages and I want us to see the clues that are left behind so that we can figure out why is Jesus causing such a ruckus. Before I do that, I want to just really briefly put aside three possible options that sometimes come up when this passage is taught. I, wanna, I want us to be cautious about three things, okay? The first one I want us to be cautious for is schism. And I chose that word because it ends in ism, and I was tired of using the word division. So here's what happens. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell the story of Jesus clearing the temple. When does it happen in Jesus' life and ministry? Does anybody remember? Late. Yeah, Tom's right. It happens After Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he clears the temple, they celebrate the Last Supper, arrest, crucifixion, death, it all happens in that last week. We are in John chapter 2. Thank you. At least three people were paying attention to the scripture reading, Ashley. John chapter 2. We are early in the story. And what this does is it makes some people start to argue. Christians start to argue. Did Jesus clear the temple late? Did Jesus clear the temple early? Did Jesus clear the temple twice? And John tells us about one and Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us about the other. Or did, what's going on here? People fight about these things. Some people want to even use it as an opportunity to discredit the Bible. They say, oh, well, look, the Bible's not internally consistent. John says it happens at the beginning. Matthew, Mark, and Luke says it happened at the end. First of all, John never explicitly says that it happens at the beginning. It just says, now when Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover. I am convinced 
that John arranges his book more theologically than he does chronologically. That it's not that chronology is unimportant, but it was less important in the mind of the ancient Near Eastern world. John is being very intentional in how he crafts his story. He puts the one temple cleansing at the beginning of the story because he wants us to see that Jesus is diverging from the establishment, the religious leaders of the day, and he's calling attention to who he is. Now, here's the thing. I might be wrong. You might think I'm wrong, and that's okay. I preach from a perfect word of God. I don't claim to be a perfect messenger, okay? My conviction is there is one temple cleansing. John puts it at the beginning for a theological reason. Matthew, Mark, and Luke put it at the end because of chronology. Other people think there are two cleansings, like smart people, like way smarter than me. And that's okay. We can disagree on things because we are committed to Jesus, the core of the gospel. And sometimes things in scripture aren't always equally clear. But all of those things that are the most essential are flatly clear. And I would even say, did Jesus cleanse the temple? Yes. Did he make a big statement? Yes. Did he have intentionality? Yes. Did it happen once or twice? I don't know. Is that more or less important than the fact that he did cleanse the temple? You guys tracking with me on this? So let's set aside schism. We don't want to fall into schism. The next ism that I want us to avoid is communism, okay? Uh, (laughs) For obvious reasons. uh, But one of the ways that this passage can be misinterpreted is that Jesus is anti-money. Jesus is anti-business. Jesus is anti-commerce. Jesus is anti-property. And that's just flatly untrue. Jesus himself said things like, Give unto Caesar that which is Caesar. Pay your taxes. And to God what is God's. Jesus had a treasurer that was part of his entourage. Yes, it was Judas Iscariot. Not a good treasurer. Uh, Okay, spoiler alert. And Jesus, actually Jesus himself paid the temple tax. If you look over in Matthew 17, he paid the temple tax. The Old Testament says things like do not steal. That presupposes property rights. There's laws about possessions and money and taxes and tithes. And there's New Testament instruction about sharing and yes, giving to the poor. And and there is even people would like to point to communism. I, I use that word loosely, but just a form of sharing and contributing and giving to others. But all of that is done out of loving response to Jesus and the generosity that he's given to us, not because Jesus is anti money or commerce or trade. Okay. There's something else that Jesus is upset about. Jesus is more upset, as we're going to see, commerce, money, and trade getting into a priority, into a place where it doesn't belong. So it's not that he's flatly against money in and of itself. Jesus is, uh, I should just point out, he is against abuse and exploitation. Can I get an amen from the church on that, okay? he, He says in the synoptic specifically, don't turn my father's house into a den of robbers, taking advantage of people, abusing them. The third ism that we need to avoid is bro-ism, okay? And uh, (laughs) I just made that one up uh, just to stay with the ism theme. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we look at verses like Jesus saying, I'm I'm, I'm weak and lowly, come to me for I'm gentle. And we see, you know, him like weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. We see the, the, the softer side of Jesus. And then when you couple that with some very, how we shall say, inaccurate, like, Renaissance painting of very, you know, skinny, very white Jesus. It's so fun. Like, he's the only Irish guy in Jerusalem with his red hair. And, like, 
you just look at these pictures of Jesus, like this is just a, a big wuss. And so then some, the more machismo among us, take the steering wheel and go, well, not that, and yank it into the other ditch where we look at Jesus with a whip and flipping over tables. And, and you just imagine Jesus is there like with an affliction t-shirt and just like punching fools in the throat. And we kind of create this like bro version of Jesus where he's like, you know, listening to like, you know, Florida Georgia line and like, you know, got a truck, big lift, his camel's got, you know, big lift kit on it, right? And we, we, we create this, a, a, a reverse caricature of Jesus. Let me say this clearly. If you cannot hold intention Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus and Jesus flipping over the tables of the money changers, then you are not really wrestling with the Jesus of the scriptures. Do not go into one flattening. Do not give place to one extreme, one caricature of Jesus just for the sake of reacting to the other one. Jesus is both lowly, humble in spirit, and yet there is a fire here In Jesus' eyes, there's a fire here in his heart that we need to see. And let me just say, I wish that I could come back from vacation with like a really chipper, happy, you know, sermon. This is going to be a confrontational sermon because Jesus is bringing confrontation in this passage. And so as I prayed earlier, let's let our guard down. Let's see what is the statement that Jesus is making. With those three caveats in place, we're going to look at four clues today. We're going to look at the Passover We're going to see a clue of Jesus' passion. We're going to see a clue of Jesus' promise. And then the way that Jesus is protective of himself. So let's pick it up in verse 13. John writes, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. The the Jewish Passover. Why does he clarify that? Because John is writing to a mixed audience, Jew and Gentile alike. For all of us who are not of Jewish background or ethnicity, praise God, we've been invited into a big story that predates us and and we get invited into this Passover celebration. So it was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem as all the people would do. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. Now, why were they selling animals? Offering, sacrifice. Yep, it's not a trick question. You guys may, you act all suspicious of me. And the money changers sitting there. So why are the money changers there? Because people are traveling from all around, all around the known region. The the Jewish people had been dispersed throughout the whole known world. They're coming back to Jerusalem. They're going to pay offerings. They're going to buy animals for sacrifices. And they need to have someone who can help make the right currency. But also, why are the animals there? Because if you ever tried traveling with pigeons, I've tried traveling with children. That's hard enough. Imagine walking through the desert with a cage full of birds or with a, with a sheep or with a goat. They're selling them there for convenience sake. For convenience sake. But the main reason that they're there, you're, you're right, it's for a, a, a specific sacrifice. It's for a specific offering. The Jewish people had many sacrifices and offerings that they would offer throughout the year, but this is one of the two big ones. There's the Day of Atonement and there's the Passover sacrifice. The Passover sacrifice is meant to call to mind the Passover story. You guys remember the Passover story? It starts with a man named Abraham. God calls him and says, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to use your your family, your offspring, to bless everybody else, all the other nations of the earth. 
Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has Joseph. Joseph gets sold into slavery in Egypt, but then by God's radical grace, rises to a prominent position of leadership, and he ends up saving, really, the whole known world. The rest of Joseph's family said, well, let's move down to Egypt. Joseph's got a leadership position. There's food. There's land there. So all of the descendants of Abraham moved down to Egypt. Generations come and go. Centuries come and go. And before too long, another Pharaoh comes in who does not like these descendants of Abraham. He does not like these Hebrew people. And he makes them all slaves. And the people groan and cry out because of their harsh treatment. And God raises up a deliverer named Moses and says, Moses, I'm going to use you to get the people out of Egypt, to set them free. And Moses goes, have you met this Pharaoh? He's a hard dude. And and God, this is the the, the burning bush. He says, yeah, I know that Pharaoh will not let you go unless he is compelled by a strong hand. It's a great phrase. Genesis 4, look at, or Exodus 4. So God says, I'm going to do a series of plagues. You remember these plagues? The river Nile turns to blood, frogs sweep over the land, gnats, flies, people get boils on their skin, the the sun turns to darkness, but Pharaoh just keeps digging his heels in, digging his heels in, being harsher and harsher and meaner and meaner to the Hebrew people until finally God says, I'm going to pull out the final plague. This will be the one that will set my people free. I am going to strike down dead every firstborn in the land. Let me just ask for a quick show of hands. How many of you are the firstborn in your family? Raise your hand. God says all. Rich, poor, Egyptian, Hebrew, doesn't matter. All. God says, I'm going to make a provision. You're going to take a lamb. You're going to slaughter it. You're going to drain the blood. You're going to cook and eat the lamb and have a celebratory meal. But that blood, you're going to take it and you're going to paint it on the doorposts of your house so that when I send the destructor, when I send the angel of death, it will pass over your house. And all who, by faith, followed the instructions of God, did what he said, trusted in the blood of the lamb, well, that night, the angel of death passed over them and the Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they lost their firstborn sons and he finally said, Go! And so in this death of a lamb, the people of Israel found their freedom. This is all symbolic. This is all pointing forward. But the people, you have to understand, of Israel up until this point, that's the big event. That's the main historical moment that they point back to and say, that is when we earned our freedom. And so this sacrifice, this annual festival now, it's a symbolic meal, reflection and worship of where they're going to find their freedom. Deuteronomy 16, God instructs him, you're going to do this over and over again. Observe the month of Abib. Keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in that month, God brought you out of Egypt by night. So you shall offer the sacrifice of the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. So the first clue that we have in Jesus' scene is it's Passover. So this has something to do with sacrifices. It has something to do with freedom. Verse 15. Making a whip of cords... Maybe from the ropes that the animals had been tied up with. We're not entirely sure. He drove them all out of the temple. This is quite a scene, right? Drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He even got the animals out. 
And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then John gives us this little insight, which is helpful as we're trying to track down clues. We're trying to figure out what the statement is. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal or passion for your house will consume me. The disciples have this divine aha moment. Like this, this reminds us of something. We've, we've seen this before. We've heard about this before. What they remembered was a line from one of the Psalms, one of the Psalms of King David, Psalm 69. If you want to flip there in your Bibles, you can. I'll put up a few verses on the screen. This is, this is King David having a little bit of a, I can call it a gripe session with God. He says things like in verse four, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. I got more enemies than I got hairs. Mighty are those who would destroy me those who attack me with lies. Now, why are they attacking David? Is it because they think he's a bad dude? They just don't like him. They don't like his face. They don't like his songwriting. What do they, what do they hate about David? Verse seven, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. He says, God, these people hate me because they hate you. I'm trying to live my life for God, he says. I'm trying to point people to the glory of God. I'm trying to worship God. I'm trying to have passion for God. And because of that, now they hate me. It is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Translation. God, I am in this mess because of you. But I love your house. I love the temple. I love the place where heaven and earth come back together. I'm very passionate about you, God. See, David knew that the main purpose of, of our lives, the, the chief end of man, is to glorify God. We actually see this in the, the Westminster Catechism. It's a set of questions and answers that came out of the Reformation period during, in England. And it's just, it's just a Q&A. The, the, the question is, what is the chief end of man? What's the main purpose of man? Does anybody know it off the top of their head? Oh, man. Dude, Alex, good job. So, are you Googling it? I see your phone. Oh, okay, I believe you. All right. Yeah, you can put it up on the screen. It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. David is a man who understood that. My life exists not for my own glory. My life exists not so I can pursue my own passions, but I want to be passionate about God's glory above all else. Here, when Jesus is flipping over the tables, driving out the money changers, he is invoking the passion of David. He is saying, our lives need to be about passionate pursuit of God's glory. So that's our second clue. Something about the, the passion of King David. Something about glorifying God. Now, verse 18. We're looking for our third clue here. <clears throat> so the Jews, the leaders, the religious leaders said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? It would be as if, if you know, to use the analogy, you're at a restaurant, someone's arguing, maybe the waiter, the wait staff says, hey, where's your receipt? Show us the receipt. Why are you so upset? They're asking for proof. 
They're asking for some sort of proof. Like you, you come in here and you're making this scene on what authority? What sign are you going to show us? Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. To which they said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? That'd be like uh, somebody from Seattle claiming that they could finish the light rail in 46 years, right? I borrowed that from someone at the 9 a.m. service. Three days, you're going to raise it up? Verse 21, John helps us. He helps us. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. He's talking about destroying the temple, tearing down the temple. That was highly offensive, highly offensive. See, when the people of Israel left Egypt, what did they first have? They didn't have a temple. They had a tabernacle. It's a tent. It's called a tent of meeting. And it's the place where God's presence would would set up shop and they would get to be with God. They were set up (laughs) teardown. They would move around. And then they, then they finally, you know, the, the Moses passes away Joshua. He leads them into the promised land and they get in and hooray, we've got the land, but still no temple yet, still the tabernacle. And then you go past the time of the judges. If you want to learn about the judges, we did a sermon series on it. It's a very bleak period of time. Not a lot of worship was happening either in the temple or outside or the tabernacle or outside of it. But finally, God raises up this king, King David, the best king that there has ever been. And he says, God, there's one thing I really want to do before I die. Before I, before I pass away, I really want to build you a temple. I really want to build a house so people can come and worship. And God says, David, you got blood on your hands. You're not going to be allowed to build me a temple, but your son Solomon, he will. And so David's son Solomon built this gorgeous, beautiful temple, cedars from Lebanon and gold from Tyre and the whole region uh, had sent imports and they built this glorious shining temple and God's presence, it said, moved in thick like a cloud and, and there in the temple, heaven and earth are coming back together again. So that's one of the great problems of humankind, is it not? That, that because of sin, back in Genesis 3, that, that where heaven and earth, where God and man are meant to be joined together, there's a great separation and a great division. Oh, but in the temple and in the tabernacle, we get this, this glimpse of heaven and earth coming back together. People of Israel didn't worship God. They, they worshiped idols, and eventually the, the foreign nations came, and they attacked Jerusalem. They tore down Solomon's temple, carried the people away off to exile. But after 70 years, they got to go back. They got to go back. You can read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah. And they started rebuilding the temple. And when they kind of got done rebuilding the temple, it says that the old men wept, not tears of joy, tears of sorrow. Because they're looking at their rinky-dink, ramshackle temple. They remembered how beautiful Solomon's was. And they're ashamed. And they're saddened. And God's presence never comes and sets up shop in the temple the same way it had Fast forward a few more centuries, uh, a king named Herod says, I want to make my name great. I want all the people to love me. What's the best way I can make the people love me? I know, I'll rebuild the temple. 
And so he, he undertakes this 46-year-long temple rebuilding project, more glorious, more opulent, larger than anything that had ever existed in that region before. Herod the Great tried to, to basically buy off the love and affection of the Jewish people because they didn't like him because he was a Roman puppet governor. But he made this huge temple. If you go to Jerusalem today and you see the Western Wall and you see the parts that are still remaining, that's the temple, Herod's temple, that parts of it still remain. But it too was torn down, 70 AD. But at this time, this is what's going on. There's a temple, Herod had built it. But the whole point of the temple, remember, the whole point of the temple is connecting with God. It's connecting with the divine. It's it's moving into transcendence. We live in a culture that has by and large said that there is no such thing as transcendence. We have science, we have logic, we have the humanities. We don't need the transcendent. But how many of you know that there are just some things that you can't prove in a spreadsheet, you can't prove in a test tube? Things like love and beauty. So you guys know that that's that's part of our call as people of God. We believe in the transcendent. How are we going to connect with it? Jesus tells us plainly, it's not even in this temple. It's going to be me. So here Jesus is making a claim to be the new temple. That's our third clue, new temple. New place where God and man come together. New place where we connect with the transcendent. And then here's the last, here's the last clue. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many did what in his name? What did they do? Believed. Um, would you say that generally speaking, when people believe in Jesus, that's a good thing or a bad thing? Good thing. Good job. Yes. We want people to believe in Jesus. When they saw the signs that he was doing, verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Huh. It says, because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Well, that... That's unfortunate. They're believing in him, but he's not like entrusting himself to them. You know what's interesting? If you look at the original Greek, that word believe is, it's the word pisteuo. And that word actually appears twice in this passage. Do you know where the other one is? It's the same word that we translate here as entrust. I actually think that the New Living Translation maybe does a little bit better job of translating these verses. Listen, I'll I'll read this to you. This is what it says. Because of the miraculous signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew about all people. No one needed to tell him about human nature for he knew what was in each person's heart. So there is a mismatch of trust here. The people are saying, we trust in you, Jesus. And he says, I don't trust what's in you. Why did they trust in him? What does John tell us? The reason why they're trusting in him? Signs and the miracles. John is telling us they want Jesus' stuff. They don't want Jesus. They want what Jesus can do for them. They don't want who Jesus is claiming to be. So there's a disconnect. So this fourth clue has something to do with Sincere faith, genuine faith, real trust in who Jesus is, not just what he can do for you. So putting all that together, 
Now we can arrive at long last at our big idea. I usually lead with it, but now we've dug in, we've investigated. Here's the big idea as I have phrased it. Jesus, his, his statement in the temple is this, that his death will be a new permanent Passover sacrifice resulting in a new permanent temple where those with sincere faith are united with God. Jesus' death, he's saying, it's going to be a new permanent Passover sacrifice and it's going to be, bring about a new permanent temple where God and man can meet, but it's for those with sincere faith. Now you're looking at that and you're saying, that's a very big, big idea. Yes, it's a lot. There is that much jam-packed into this one little story. It's essentially like Jesus is saying, hey, take the entire Hebrew Bible, take Genesis through Malachi, every single thing in it is pointing at me. Get the bright, flashing neon lights, get the arrows, get the signs. Jesus is saying, it's all coming to a focus. It's all coming to a head in me. That's why Jesus is turning over the tables. That's why he's driving out the money changers. He's making a statement about who he is and what he came to do. And so let me do this. In the, in the few minutes that we have left, left together, for those of you who are Christians, you have trusted in Jesus' death and his resurrection. The Bible says that we are being built into a temple for God. Are we not? So might we, as the temple of God, need some cleansing from time to time? So if Jesus is confronting them, let me, let me speak to us. I'm including myself in this. And I want to ask about these, these elements that we, we've seen. When it comes to the sacrifice, when it comes to the Passover sacrifice, where do you find your sense of freedom? Jesus said that in his death, He's the new Passover sacrifice, so we're going to find true freedom in him. In repentance of sin, in trusting in his sacrificial death, in living our lives in obedience for him. Did you know the most free that you can possibly be is when you're a slave to Christ? The Apostle Paul tells us that. But our world and our sinful hearts look for freedom in all sorts of places, do we not? Where, where do you look for freedom Money, if I just had enough money, I'd be able to be as free and in control of my destiny as I want. Recreation, I just want to have a lot of free time. And think about the words we use. Do you seek your freedom in avoidance of responsibility or abdication of responsibility? I won't let nobody tie me down. Where do you seek your freedom? How do you know that you're free? How do you feel free. The world offers us freedom all over the place, does it not? Jesus says, come to me. Who the Son sets free will be free indeed. So tell me, are you free? Dear Christian, do you remember that in Christ is truly your freedom or do you find yourself taking the offers of the, of the world. For those of you who are not Christians, you might feel free, but are you really? Second, where's your passion? 
Where's your passion? And like David, like Jesus, is your desire truly for God's glory? Or are you passionate about any number of other things, even possibly good things that crowd out worship and glory of God? Jesus was passionate at the temple because the purpose of the temple is to worship and glorify God. And they turned it into a a, a trading center. Not that there's anything wrong with changing money or buying an animal, but it was in the wrong place. You might have passions that are in the wrong place. They have supplanted passion for God's glory. A, A sports team that you follow, a hobby, family, gardening. I mean, anything. Anything that takes a place of passion in our hearts that is higher than passion for God, Jesus wants to drive those money changers out of your heart. What about the temple and connection with the transcendent? This is one of the main reasons I am convinced that people turn to drugs and other mind-altering substances is because they're looking for a connection to transcendence. Life can be just so doggone boring. The grind, you get up, you go to work, you do your nine to five, you punch your hours, you do whatever, and then we are seeking transcendence. We're looking for beauty, we're looking for love, we're looking for truth. Do you find transcendence in an experience? Do you find transcendence in a sensual experience? Whether that's sensual in the sense of like a romantic type of thing or sensual in some other way that you're just looking for some sort of high. Meanwhile, Jesus is saying, I am the connection between heaven and earth. I am the true temple. I am where God and man meet together and you're not invited into some phony fraud of transcendence. You get to connect with God himself. Where do you seek transcendence? And lastly, with your faith, is it sincere or is it convenient? Do you love Jesus when he does good things for you? Do you love Jesus when he does the signs, the miracles? Do you love Jesus when he is, oh man, he's he's sticking it to the man, taking on those temple authorities? Ah, I'm team Jesus. Down with the 1%. Or are you willing to listen to Jesus when he says, you're going to follow me, you're going to pick up your cross and you're going to die daily. Every day you're going to die. There are preachers who will get a lot more followers on Twitter than I will ever have by telling you that Jesus wants you to have everything you could ever want. Make you feel happy. Oh, anything that's sad. Jesus doesn't want you to be sad ever. Jesus wants you to be rich and wealthy and successful and everything is going to go good. Meanwhile, I'm going to try my best to stand up here and tell you the truth about Jesus and that his invitation is for you to come and die. Make no mistake. Listen to me. Lest I be too bleak. There is coming a day when Christ will return. And the trumpet will sound, the skies will rip open. It says that sin and sickness and death will be no more. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. The end of the Christian's life is a glorious one. Amen? We got very good news. But in the meantime, Jesus tells us to expect trials and tribulations. So where's your faith? Let me just, one hypothetical situation of a million that I could probably, we could could work together and think of. What if... Someday down the road, the IRS says, you no longer get 
to count your donation to the church as a charitable contribution, will you still give? We're increasingly secular. It's not unfathomable to think that something like that could happen. I'm not trying to be alarmist or gloom and doom. But what if the IRS said, no, you don't get to count on your taxes. You don't get a tax write-off for giving to the church. Do you keep giving? What if every single employee in your entire office not only does not follow Jesus, but is antagonistic to the gospel, will you still say, no, I love Jesus. He died for me. He rose for me. Some of you are in that experience right now. Let me say this to you, and then I want us to pray. Jesus is here today, and there is an intensity to what I'm saying to you. There's an intensity, the whip of cords in his hand. But my prayer is that you would know, as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus, the intensity is actually an action of God's love and grace for you. When we are chastised, when we are corrected by God in his love, there's always hope. Amen? God does not come with condemnation saying, you're terrible, you failed, you've sinned, end of story. Christ comes and says, you're out of line. I'm bringing the whip, I'm flipping the tables. Now, will you follow me into life and freedom and joy and hope and grace and compassion? We are never hopeless as Christians, amen? So even today, if God's doing a corrective work in your heart, I am going to pray in a moment that God would do that corrective work in your heart, but that you would understand the difference between conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation of the enemy. We reject condemnation in every form because we who are in Christ are not condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Your, your guilty uh, verdict has been done away with. You've been declared not guilty by Christ himself. But there is correction. And there are times in the temple of our own hearts that Jesus wants to do some cleansing. Let's go before him in prayer. God, I ask that you would, by your grace, show us where we in our hearts have drifted. God, if if we've sought freedom apart from you, forgive us. If our passion has faded or if it's been overtaken by the things of the world, forgive us. Cleanse our temples, Lord God. If we've sought transcendence in experiences or or romance or substances or anything else other than you, the true temple, forgive us. God, when we've followed you because we want your stuff instead of wanting you, would you forgive us? God, if there's anyone here today who's not a believer in Jesus, I ask and I pray, God, that you would show them the riches of mercy that are available in Christ Jesus. You give them that faith to believe. God, I ask and I pray for those of us who are Christians, would you do the loving, correcting work in our hearts and our lives that you want to do? And that we would have hope. We'd have hope in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want to invite us into a time of response. We're going to respond in a few ways. Our financial stewards are going to be in collecting an offering. And I say this, if you're a guest or a visitor, you are not obligated to give. There is no arm twisting or guilt here. But for each of us, this, who is a believer in Jesus, this is an invitation to true worship of God. We're going to invite our younger students class in to join us for our time of response as well. 
as you give? Check your heart. Is this, is this true, genuine worship to God? Is this something I'm doing because I have been given much grace in Jesus? Or is this just something I'm doing as a religious exercise, going through the motions? Sometimes people ask, how much should I give? And there are some things you can talk about in the Bible about percentages and things like that. I think the best word for how much we as Christians should give is sacrificial. Do you feel it? Have you ever gone to like buy something and be like, oh, I can't because I gave some of that money to the church. I gave some of that money away to be generous. That might be, that might be a better barometer than just a flat percent. Usually I'll go through discussion questions at this time. I'm not going to do that right now. I want us to stay in this, this worshipful place. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians uh, 11 for our time of celebrating the Lord's table. If you are a Christian, even if you're a guest or a visitor with us, you are welcome to join us at the table. They're going to hand out the elements. You can hold on to them. We'll take this all together in a minute. If you're not a, a Christian, you're not a believer in Jesus, I'm going to ask you to abstain, but here's why. It's not because we're trying to keep you out, but because we genuinely want to invite you in. This is a celebration meal for Christians. This is for us who have placed our faith in Jesus, his death, his resurrection, for us to commemorate, hey, this is his death. This is where we find our freedom. If you're not a believer, there's a wide open invitation. Trust in Jesus and join us at the table today. Would you? Would you do that? And we'll be praying with you and for you that God would give you that faith to believe and to celebrate with us. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 to direct our hearts to what we're going to do. He says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. This is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So today as we proclaim the Lord's death, let's focus on his death as our Passover lamb, the one who gave us freedom. This is a meager meal. It's a, it's a little cup and a little cracker, but in this, we have true freedom. And then there's an invitation to reflect. He says, Let a, um, whoever therefore eats the bread of, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Our musicians are going to play instrumentally for a moment. You'll have an opportunity just to sit, pray, reflect. If you're with your spouse or your children or friend or community group member, whatever you want to do, you want to pray with them, talk with them, you can do that during this time while we hold. And then in just a few minutes, uh, Joe and the team will invite us to, to stand and sing together. But let's go before the Lord in prayer one more time before we do. So God, thank you for this bread. Thank you for this cup. Thank you for what it represents, our freedom found in your sacrifice. I pray that we would trust more deeply in your sacrifice. We would trust more deeply in your blood that was spilled for us. God, may we examine ourselves now. God, where is there cleansing work that you want to do in the temple of our lives? And may we respond to you in faith. May we respond to you with repentance. And may we respond to you with joy, knowing that in you, our life is found. We pray all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.